Welcome or welcome back to the company of the cat. Hi. Today I want to talk about salt and its significance in A Song of Ice and Fire. I want to talk mostly about the wall and about how salt is definitely a tool that would help during the long night in general. I have already delved into it in some of my videos because where there are ironborn there is salt and it is known that I do have quite a lot of ironborn videos in this channel. If you enjoy my content don't forget to like and subscribe if you haven't already. And without further ado, let's go. Salt in real life has held significant cultural, economic, and religious importance throughout history for several reasons. And in many mythologies and folklore around the world, it often carries symbolic and mystical significance as well. Before the advent of refrigeration, salt was crucial preservative for food. It helped prevent the spoilage of meat and fish, allowing people to store these items for a longer time and transport them over long distances. In various ancient cultures, salt was a valuable commodity and was sometimes used as a currency as well, thus the word salary. It played a role in trade and commerce, contributing to the wealth of certain regions. Salt enhances the flavor of food, making it more palatable. Its ability to improve taste has contributed to its widespread use in culinary practices across different cultures. Salt has been recognized for its medical properties in various cultures. It was used to treat wounds and saline solutions were employed for various health purposes and still are. Offering salt to guests is a gesture of hospitality in many cultures. It is seen as a way to ensure the well-being of visitors and to strengthen the bonds of friendship. An idea that Martin incorporated in the novels as well. Salt was sometimes used in some cultures as part of the ritual of forming agreements, pacts and covenants. The act of sharing salt symbolizes the binding nature of the commitment being made. In many cultures, salt is believed to have protective properties against evil spirits. Spreading salt around the perimeter of a space or using it in rituals is thought to create a barrier that wards off malevolent forces. In some places, salt sprinkled in doorways and windows to prevent evil spirits from entering the house. Salt was commonly associated with purification and cleansing rituals in many religions and cultures. It is believed to have the power to purify spaces, objects, and even individuals. Salt water was often also used in rituals to cleanse and purify. Even the idea of holy water most likely came from this. And in the beginning, it was about salt water since it is a good solution for aiding healing. Salt has been used as an offering to deities in various religious practices. Its purity and association with preservation make it a symbol of sincerity and devotion in offerings. In some creation myths, salt plays also a role in the formation of the world of humanity. And because of all this, salt was often considered a magical substance in folklore possessing mystical qualities. In the book, salt is also very important, like it is in real life. The Ironborn obviously think of it as holy, and they believe seawater purifies and their priests even drink it to strengthen their faith. The salt made his eyes burn. Until it was all he could do not to cry out, he could taste the ocean on his lips. Let Theon your servant be born again from the sea as you were, Aaron Greyjoy intoned. Bless him with salt, bless him with stone, bless him with steel. Nephew, do you still know your words? What is dead may never die, Theon said, remembering. What is dead may never die his uncle echoed, but rises again harder and stronger. Stand. Theon stood, blinking back tears from the salt in his eyes. If he were ten days in the waters, he'd be dead or mad from drinking seawater. Salt water was holy. Aaron Dampier and other priests might bless men with it and shallow a mouthful or two from time to time to strengthen their faith, but no mortal man could drink of the deep sea of four days at a time and hope to live. You claim to be a sorcerer? Victorian asked the prisoner. We came from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Open your mouth and drink deep of God's blessing. Fill your lungs with water that you may die and be reborn. It does no good to fight. 
Salt occupies a central place in the lore of the Ironborn religion. They worship the sea because it is salty. They even say salt sea instead of just sea very often, and they bless with salt. The salt is what burns their eyes and helps them see. The salt is the purifying agent, the holy element, the component that strengthens the religion and faith. Salt is also one of the very few things people say they have in their blood, along with fire, ice and cold, wolf blood and dragon blood. We see it obviously in the Ironborn's blood, but in House of the Dragon, they put a very similar saying in some Velaryon chants as well. You're wrong. The Stark was my goaler, but my blood is still salt and iron. True Ironborn had salt water in their veins, the priest of the drowned god proclaimed. The black-blooded horse were false kings, ungodly usurpers who must be cast down. Though their mother will not return from the voyage, they will remain bound together in blood. Salt curses through the Velaryon blood. Ours runs thick, ours runs true, and ours must never thin. In the case of the Starks and the Targaryens, these elements in their blood point to a magical bloodline, and considering we have many weird sea-related things that are heavily linked to salt, it would not be a reach to assume that the magical abilities akin to fire and ice in their situations are because of the salt, something that both the Ironborn passages and that Valerian funeral chants reveal. Salt is what makes their blood unique and true. We, of course, have the ancient salt and bread custom. The custom of serving bread and salt to guests is a reoccurring reference in the books. It is a welcome ritual that serves not only as a Westerosi tradition of hospitality, but also as a formal assurance of guest right, a sacred bond of trust and honor guaranteeing that nobody in attendance, hosts and guests alike, shall be harmed. Violating the guest right is widely considered among the most atrocious moral crimes. My lord, some food would be most welcome. We have ridden many leagues in the rain. Food, huh? A loaf of bread, a bite of cheese, mayhaps a sausage, some wine to wash it down, and salt. Bread and salt. Of course, of course. My guests, my honored guests, be welcome beneath my roof and at my table. We thank you for your hospitality, my lord. Once I had eaten at his board, I was protected by guest right. The laws of hospitality are as old as the first man and sacred as a heart tree. Here you are my guests and safe from my harm at my hands. This night, at least. This custom is also a real-life one in the Middle East, the Balkans, and in Nordic, Slavic, and Baltic countries. The bread is chosen because it is a staple food. In many cultures, bread is a metaphor for basic necessities and living conditions. Salt is used because it signifies permanence, loyalty, durability, fidelity, usefulness, value, and purification. In the novels, it seems like it is used for the same reasons, considering that the custom is presented pretty much identical to how it happens in real life. The salt in this equation is the one that makes the pact significant, pure, and valuable. The loyalty and the permanence of this relationship between guests and host is signified by the salt. And considering how sacred they hold this custom in the north, I wouldn't find it weird if magic was involved or the hatteries were involved to make sure that these pacts remain unbroken, remain pure and true. The salt is the one that binds them. Thus, in many places around the world, it was considered bad luck if salt was spilled on the table. In Greece, even to this day, I know older people who, if they want a guest to leave or consider them unlucky, will spill salt behind their backs. Salt is also mentioned very often when someone wants to signify their own or someone else's status. People with higher status sit above the salt during feasts. I don't know how, she said miserably. Oh, I think you do, said Littlefinger, with one of those smiles that did not reach his eyes. You will be the most beautiful woman in the hall tonight, as lovely as your lady mother at your age. I cannot suit you at the desk, but you'll have a place of honor above the salt and underneath a wall sconce. The fire will be shining in your hair, so everyone will see how fair of a face you are. 
So of course in the novels as well, salt is a valuable material that not only enhances the flavor of food, but it also signifies status. The wealthier people are the ones with enough money and power to have and use salt whenever they want while eating and have it on their table. Now this is a passage I find curious, but I didn't know where to place it in the script, so I'm just gonna mention it here. Stannis puts it in his water for some reason. The mules love the sound of their own brain, why else? And I need them to hold my cart. Or to be sure, once in a while some useful notion is put forth. But not today, I think. Ah, here's your son without water. Devon set the tray on the table and filled two clay cups. The king sprinkled a pinch of salt in his cup before he drank. Davos took his water straight, wishing it were wine. You were speaking of your council? I am kinda confused by this, to be honest. I wonder why would he do something like this? Was there a notion or something that added salt could detect poison? Or provide better hydration? Or maybe that it worked as a purificator of some sort? Maybe a superstition? I really don't know. And also it seems that Davos doesn't think of it as weird or unusual. Make of that what you will, I just mention it because it is a scene that always had me kind of, huh? Okay, I guess. Salt is one of the main components of the Azor High prophecy as well, making it, in my opinion, a very important clue on why salt may play a bigger role than what we believe in the story. Theoretical or actual salt, the prophecy points to it being important in essence for some reason. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azora High shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Melisandre thinks Stannis is Azora High because he is the lord of a place amidst salt and smoke, Dragonstone, which is a volcanic island. Both Rhaegar and Aegon at some point were believed to be the prince, again because they were born amidst salt and smoke. The salt is the indicator, the salt is present and important. In my Euron video, I suggested that he went to Valyria for this exact reason as well. It is confirmed in the Forsaken chapter that Euron is very much aware of the Azor High prophecy, and not just that, he is trying to make it come true. Euron said that he had a dragon egg at some point that he couldn't hatch, but what if he went to Valyria precisely to make it hatch? In theory, there isn't a better place than the smoking sea in Valyria to bring dragons back to life. Euron just eating the egg seems very improbable in my opinion. Other people say he sold it to take the horn and his armor and he never went to Valyria, but he has been to Valyria. George Martin has confirmed it in a fan meeting, there is no dispute there. What if he went to Valyria so he could hatch the egg amidst salt and smoke? But it didn't work. That would explain why he would try to go there in the first place, plus the treasures that he claimed were found there. In Daenerys' case, the salt is mostly symbolic and not 100% literal. There were tears, like in Rhaegar's case, as Maester Aemon informed us, but she also hatched the eggs in the Dothraki Sea, which isn't a literal sea, at least not anymore. We of course have her own birth as well, she was born on Dragonstone, which, as Mel said, is the place amidst salt and smoke. Also, dragons seem to have a good relationship with the sea. We see Danny's dragons play and dive into it, and of course we have stories of dragons who used to fly, fish, and stay close to the sea like Grey Ghost. Dragons always prefer to attack from above, Danny had learned. Should either get between the other and the sun, he would fold his wing and dive screaming, and they would tumble from the sky locked together in a tangled scaly ball, jaws snapping and tails lashing. The first time they had done it, she feared that they meant to kill each other, but it was only a sport. No sooner would they splash into the sea, then they would break apart and rise again, shrinking and hissing, the salt water steaming off them, as their wings clawed at the air. 
Gregos dwelt in a smoking vent high on eastern side of Dragonmount, preferred fish and watched most of glimpses flying low over the narrow sea snatching prey from the waters, a pale grey-white beast the color of morning mist. He was a notably shy dragon who avoided men at their works for years at a time. Salt and fire are both the oldest known purificators. They always went hand in hand in most religions and cultures. Salt was one of the most important components where sacrifice was involved, especially sacrifice through fire. From ancient civilizations like Persians, Greeks and Hindus and Japanese to religions like Christianity and other Abrahamic religions, where we see salt and light, one of the main teachings of Jesus on morality and discipline. Mark 9.49 speaks about the salting of the condemned, which is a rhetorical device indicating the severity of the punishment. Mark 9.50 reads in part, Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. The salt in this verse refers to the goodwill that seasons positive relationship between people. So again, we see truth, pact, and punishment in the case of moral crimes. In the Old Testament, there was also mention of the practice of newborn babies being rubbed with salt to purify them. Salt and fire are always associated with one another. Not only does salt have some attributes of fire, like the burning feeling, but salt itself is inflammable, while it can also act as a catalyst or a fuel for other substances. When salt is mixed with certain substances that are flammable, it can enhance the combustion process and increase the intensity of a fire. Since it can be burned, it can be used to prevent fire from spreading. These are the reasons why salt always has the same attributes as fire in many religions, but somewhat milder and less destructive. And the main reason for the superstition about evil spirit and salt also derives from its inflammability. But also because as a purification agent that burns in its own right, it can be used against not just evil spirits, but even fiery evil spirits from hell. In the novels, the Ironborn also have the belief that the drowned god brought the flame from the salt sea, something that corresponds to various real-life myths and suggests that either the fire came from the salt sea or the salt in the water is the result of fire. In Finnish mythology, Ilmarinen, who is a blacksmith, created Sampo by conjuring the four winds to fan the flames. The winds blew for three days until finally the Sampo was born, taking the shape of a magic meal that produces grain, salt, and gold. Salt and fire were always connected, and we see similar beliefs in the novels as well, so if fire could protect against the others, as myths claim, and they can be killed with dragon glass, would it be that weird if salt could hold them back, like it holds back evil spirits in folklore? Salt is a common way of melting snow and ice. It works by lowering the freezing point of the water. When salt is added to ice, it disrupts the molecular structure of ice, reducing its freezing point and causing it to melt at a lower temperatures. All in all, every winter, salt is a very useful tool against ice. Salt is really important because it's seen as the most essential part of things, especially life. People used to think of salt as super valuable because it's necessary for life, and in some places it's hard to get. The idea that salt is so important is emphasized in the Bible when it says you are the salt of the earth. Salt is seen as a pure, clean, and unchanging substance. It seems like you can't break it down into anything else, and living things need it to survive. So people have thought of salt as the most important part of everything, the essence of life and the soul of the body. In ancient Egypt, salt and burning candles represented life and were placed over a dead body to express the ardent desire of prolonging the life of the deceased. After death, all parts of the body fall apart. In life, the soul maintains the part intact and in connection with one another. In the same way, salt maintains the dead body in its form and connection, thus representing, so to speak, the soul. 
The durability of the salt and its immunity against decay made it an emblem of immortality, and we see the exact same parallels in the books as well. Bless him with salt, bless him with stone, bless him with steel. What is dead may never die. George Martin himself, when asked about the name of the series, he said, I mean, fire is love, fire is passion, fire is sexual ardor, and all these things. Ice is betrayal, ice is revenge, ice is, you know, the kind of cold in humanity, and all that stuff is being played out in the books. The same things are applied to salt as well. This is why they go hand in hand, two metaphorical applications of the same idea. Salt is used to keep the fire always burning. At the Osiris festivals in Egypt, all those taking part had to light lamps the oil of which had salt mixed in it. The idea of fire not only in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in poetry as well as in mythology, is constantly used to represent the ideas of the fire of life, and the fire of love, and salt assists this as well. Additionally, in real life, it was also used to produce the opposite effect as well, keeping the dead and their spirits well. Dead. <laughs> salt was used to protect the fields from evil influences and was further used to prevent the souls of the dead from returning to earth and to secure the peace in purgatory. Salt, like fire and ice, can be both destructive or helpful, it has the same duality and the same symbolisms, and we see it in many instances in the story being important and symbolizing pretty much the same things as in real life. Looking at all this, I am becoming more and more convinced, to be honest, that salt is involved in the construction of the wall. First of all, the wall stretches from westwards by the bridge to eastwards by the sea. Both locations stop at water. In the east, it stops at the sea, and the westernmost castle, according to the official maps of the Lands of Ice and Fire, is south of the gorge, and just east of the Bridge of Skulls, pretty much at the place where the river meets the sea. And this is the strongest evidence for me that salt prevent them from passing. Ice is pretty much frozen water, and when the others arrive, the cold is unbearable, the cold is different, alive, they can smell it. It is almost magical, and for some reason, they can't just freeze the top of the sea and pass? Yes, salt water has a lower freezing point, but it's not that significant of a difference, and it shouldn't be that hard for the others, whose cold weapons can shatter steel, to freeze it. Something is preventing them from doing this, and I would say that this something is the salt. If salt water can stop them, then extending the salty barrier over the land is kind of a great idea. We also have various moments where the wall is described as weeping, crying, shedding tears, etc. And tears are salty as well. And how did you find the wall? Weeping, Will said frowning. She wasn't really climbing the way he used to climb. She was only walking up some steps that the Nightswoods had been hewn hundreds and thousands of years ago. He remembered Mr. Lewin saying the Nightfall was the only castle where the steps had been cut from the ice of the wall itself. Or maybe it was his uncle Benjamin. The newer castle had wooden steps or stone ones or long ramps of earth and gravel. Ice is too treacherous. It was his uncle who told him that. He said that the outer surface of the wall wept icy tears sometimes, though the core inside stayed frozen, hard as rock. The steps must have melted and refrozen a thousand times since the last time Black Brothers left the castle, and every time they did, they shrunk a little and got smoother and rounder, and more treacherous, and smaller. It's almost like the wall was swallowing them back into itself. The Nightfort is the oldest castle on the wall, and has been abandoned for years at this point, there are features of it, like the stairs carved out of the eyes of the wall, and it was here where we see the other very weird instance when Bran passed through the Black Gate. I am the sword in the darkness, Samuel Tarly said. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. Then pass, the door said. Its lips opened wide and wider and wider still, 
until nothing at all remained but a great gaping mouth in a ring of wrinkles. Some stepped aside and waved Jolson through ahead of him. Summer followed, sniffing as he went, and then it was Brand's turn. Hodor ducked, but not low enough. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Brand's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. This is a very important part of the storyline. From the moment Brand passes through the wall, we see the end of Bran as we know him. He pretty much becomes Bran the Greenseer. It is the last line Bran thinks before he passes the wall, and the last line of him in this book as well. We also learn that the wall has a way of regulating who passes and who don't. A magical way. The black gate is located under the wall, set deep in a wall of the well at the center of the kitchens in Nightford, and is as old as the wall itself. For some reason, a drop of water fell on Bran when he passes through the door, a salty drop of water. Even he found it curious that the drop was not cold and was as salty as a tear. All this while, at the beginning of this chapter, he is thinking how his uncle told him that the outer surface of the wall wept icy tears sometimes. Having the wall being a salty barrier also parallels every story we know about ancient magical conflicts of the past as well. When the first men started migrating to Westeros, the children of the forest created a salty barrier by breaking the arm of Dorne. The old songs say that the Greensers used dark magics to make the seas rise and sweep away the land, shattering the arm, but it was too late to close the door. The wars went on until the earth ran red with blood of men and children both, but more children than men, for men were bigger and stronger, and wood and stone and obsidian make a poor match for bronze. Finally, the wives of both races prevailed and the chiefs and heroes of the first men met the Greensers and the wood dancers amidst the weirwood groves of a small island in the great lake called Godzine. A similar situation was the one at the Neck as well. A small slave people, some say they are small in stature because they intermarried with the children of the forest, but more likely it results from indiquent nourishments, from grains do not nourish amidst the fens and swamps and salt marshes of the Neck, and the Granogmen subsist largely upon a diet of fish, frogs and lizards. They are quite secretive, preferring to keep to themselves. Legend says that the great floods that broke the land bridge that is now the broken arm and made the Neck a swamp were the work of Greensears, who gathered at Mount Caelin to work dark magic. It would be on par with these two barriers, if indeed the wall is also a salty barrier created by magic. These two events also happened because the children of the forest used the hammer of the waters according to myths and legends. I have said it before in my horn video, but it makes sense for the hammer of the waters to be a horn, actually. In the first video I made for this channel about Garth, I talked about how horns and antlers, virility, fertility, and trees are all associated with gods like Kernunos and Pan, and in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe with Garth and characters like him. Storm, Thunder, and Sky Gods are the direct evolution of these forest fertility deities, and they have as symbols hammers and thunderbolts. In our story, characters with horns and antlers are also always associated with hammers. Robert was like a horn god with a hammer in his youth. Tormund is known as a horn blower, but also as a thunderfist, with hands as big as hammers. The good brothers are known for being horn blowers, and their sigil also depicts a warhorn, and their main castle is called Hammerhorn. We see a constant connection between horns and hammers, and in the fandom I have seen a few people suggest that the hammer of the waters was a horn, and I believe that too. The parallels are way too many and all over the books for that not to be the case. We also have this line from the world book, even if we accept that the old gods broke the arm of Dorne with a hammer of the waters, as the legends claim, the Greensears sang the song too late. We see a connection between magic, sound and hammers, more specifically the hammer of the waters. In our story, 
we do have a horn that is associated with the wall. We know that the Horn of Winter, also known as the Horn of Yoramun, is a legendary magical horn and thousands of years ago Yoramun, a king beyond the wall, supposedly blew the horn and woke giants from the earth. The free folk believe that blowing the horn can bring down the wall. The horn is called Horn of Winter and we already have another magical horn, one linked to fire, the Dragonbinder. So putting two and two together, I am gonna say that this one has a connection to ice, since it fits thematically and with its name. My second guess is that originally this horn belonged to the Nightwatch. Their vote says, I am the sword in the darkness, I am the watcher on the walls, I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the seal that guards the realm of men. They are the horn that wakes the sleepers and at the end of the day it makes sense for the people on the wall to have a horn that can control it, if the stories are indeed correct. What is weird about the whole situation is why make a horn that brings down the barrier that protects you in the first lane? Why the hell make a horn that brings the wall down? There is the army of the dead beyond the wall and generally nobody seems to know when the others will come knocking. Why bring it down? Except if it isn't just for bringing down the wall, but also for raising it up. The horn's name is the Horn of Winter, so it is used in winter and most likely has ice magic powers. But if it is to be used in winter as the name suggests, why bring the wall down? It doesn't make sense. They say they are the shield that protects the realm of men, they're guarding the wall and at the same time they are the horn that wakes the sleepers. So it makes sense to bring the wall up, not down. The horn part of the vow is the one that you need to say to the black gate so you can pass. It is an important part. The black gate is a subterranean door and is useful when it is dangerous to walk on the surface, so when the others are very active, aka during the long night, when the magical wall needs to be up. The horn wakes the sleepers, other stories say that it wakes giants from the earth, and some say that it can control the wall and bring it down. The wall looks like a giant raising from the earth, the horn wakes something strong in some stories, and it can also control something at the wall as well in others. So I think the horn was made to raise the wall. It controls the wall and, depending on the intention of the blower, it can bring it up or down. Behind them rose the wall, immense, forbidding, frigid, a crawl with builders pushing up a switchback stair to join the remnants of the old. Here though the top of the wall loomed 800 feet above the forest floor, a good third of the height was earth and stone rather than ice. The slope was too steep for their horses, almost as difficult a scramble as the face of the first men but still vastly easier to ascend at the sheer vertical face of the wall itself. The wall goes very deep into the earth, the black gate is inside a well, a well that goes even deeper, and the gate seems like it is controlling who can pass. Its foundations apparently are also woven into the foundations of the wall. The wall. The wall is more than just ice and stone, he said. There are spells woven into it. Old ones. And strong. He cannot pass beyond the wall. I have dreamt of your wall, Jon Snow. Great was the lord that raised it and great the spells locked beneath its eyes. We walk beneath one of the hinges of the earth. And of course when George Martin was asked about the construction of the wall and how it is impossible to be just ice, etc, etc, he answered, yes, the wall was much smaller when first raised. It took hundreds of years to complete and thousands to reach its present height. But one thing I will say for what it's worth, more than ice went to the raising of the wall. Remember, these are fantasy novels. Magic is obviously involved and magic has a price, especially magic of that caliber. If the hammer of the waters was also a horn, we know that the singers sacrificed a lot of their children. 
It was a dark spell, a spell requiring a hefty price. And while Melisandre had the knowledge to make more powders, she lacked many rare ingredients. My spell should suffice. She was stronger at the wall, stronger than even in a sigh. I hate this wall. Can you feel how cold it is? It's made of ice. You know nothing, Jon Snow. This wall is made of blood. If you had the Horn of Yoramun all along, why haven't you used it? Why bother building turtles and sending thents to kill us in our beds? If this horn is all the songs say, why not just sound it and be done? It was Dala who answered him. Dala great with child, laying on her pile of furs beside the brazier. We three folk know things you kneelers have forgotten. Sometimes the sword road is not the safest, Jon Snow. The Horn Lord once said, a sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. The Horn Lord was a king beyond the wall long ago who attacked the north. He allegedly used magic to pass south of the wall. Given his name and the fact that he used magic to pass it, I would say that he probably did have the Horn of Winter. Maybe he used it, probably not, but from the stories I would say that he at least had it in his possession. Because I really do not know how to explain my idea gradually. I'm gonna say what I think happened and explain why I think that afterward. From what we see in the series, the others cannot pass the sea. So they made the Horn of Winter similar to the Hammer of the Waters, but instead of raising the sea and drowning the land, they raised a wall of seawater and froze it into place with magic. I know the hell are you talking about, but stay with me, I will explain my thought process. According to legend, the wall was built by Brandon the Builder with the assistance of the Children of the Forest and the Giants. And it is reinforced with ancient spells and sorcery. If the singers were involved, then obviously the magic must have been similar to some extent to what we know the children could do. The other event we know was important, and heavy magic was involved, was the Hammer of the Waters. If the hammer was actually a horn, and the Horn of Winter was created similarly, with the help of the children, it must work kinda similarly, and the Hammer of the Waters controlled the waters. The old songs say that the Greensers used dark magic to make the seas rise and sweep away the land, shattering the arm, but it was too late to close the door. The icy part was getting taller and taller with time, but that doesn't change the fact that somehow they raised this icy part, which was obviously even then big enough to require magic, according to the legends and of course George Martin himself. Apart from Dragonglass and Dragonsteel, we do not know much about the others and their weaknesses, but it seems that they cannot pass through seawater. And 100% this is something that would be noticed, so if somehow seawater was between them, like the children of the forest tried to do with a hammer, and in some means the neck as well, problem solved. The thing is raising the seas everywhere, and to such an extent that a sizable portion of land would sink and halt the others, like it is suggested happened with the hammer, at the arm of Dorn, which caused so much havoc, sounds dangerous and also not as easy, because we are talking about a much bigger part of land that is also mountainous in the western part as well. A saltwater wall is kind of a genius idea. And I hear you saying where the hell did they find the salt water so they can freeze it into place. And my answer to that is underground and from the sides. The foundations go very deep into the earth. Very deep. The Nightford is the largest castle on the wall and the oldest. The castle itself has of course been rebuilt many times over the centuries, but the underground tunnels and passages still remain as they originally were. And this is the case for most castles as far as we know. We do not know what the hell was happening there, but all the strange stories about the wall are from this castle. And Alisan for some reason was disturbed by the place enough to want it abandoned and replaced with a whole as new castle which she paid with her own jewels. The place is also huge, huge to a person who travelled on top of her dragon all over Westeros. 
everyone inside the story points out how dark and how grim the Nightfort is. This is also the place where the Black Gate is located. The Black Gate is inside a well, a bottomless well that is big enough for people to go in and out, and for a massive gate to exist. The well is very much something that disturbed Bran and is described extensively. The well was the thing he liked the least, though. It was a good well fit across all stone, with steps built into its side, circling down and down into darkness. The walls were damp and covered with nitter, but none of them could see the water at the bottom, not even Mira with her sharp hunter's eyes. Maybe it hasn't have a bottom, Bran said uncertainly. Hodor peered over the knee-high lip at the well and said Hodor. The word echoed down the well. Hodor, 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 Hodor. Fainter and fainter. Hodor, 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 Hodor. And it was less than a whisper. Hodor looked startled. Then he laughed and bent to scoop a broken piece of slate off the floor. Hodor, don't, said Bran, but too late. Hodor tossed the slate over the edge. You shouldn't have done that. You don't know what's down there. You might have heard something. Or... Or... Woken something up. Hodor looked at him innocently. Hodor? Far, far, far below, they heard the sound of the stone found water. It wasn't a splash. Not truly. It was more of a gulp. As if whatever was below had opened a quivering gelt mouth to swallow Hodor's stone. Faint echo travelled up the well, and for a moment Brad thought he heard something moving, thrashing about in the water. Maybe we shouldn't stay here, he said uneasily. By the well, asked Mira, or in the nightfort? Yes, said Bran. He could almost hear the ghostly sentinels calling to each other atop the wall and winding the ghostly warhorns. Pale moonlight slided down through the hole in the dome, painting the branches of the weirwood as they strained up toward the roof. It looked as if the tree was trying to catch the moon and drag it down into the well. Old gods, Bran prayed, if you hear me, don't set a dream tonight. Or if you do, make it a good dream. I'll go first, I know the way. Some hesitated at the top. There's just so many steps. He sighed before he started down. Jojen followed, then Summer, then Hodor with Bran riding on his back. Mira took the rear with her spear and net in hand. It was a long way down. The top of the well was bathed in moonlight, but it grew smaller and dimmer every time they went around. Their footsteps echoed over the damp stones, and the water sounded grew louder. Should we have brought torches? Jojen asked. Your eyes will adjust, said Sam. Keep one hand on the wall and you won't fall. The well grew darker and colder with every turn. When Bran finally lifted his head around to look back up the shaft, the top of the wall was no bigger than half a moon. Hodor? Hodor whispered. Hodor, 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 Hodor. The well whispered back. The water sound were close, but when Bran peered down, he saw only blackness. And at the end of the scene, we have of course the salty as a tear line. We already know that underneath there are countless tunnels and caves and passages, and all of them go very deep, and according to Leaf, they lead to a sandless sea. You know nothing, Jon Snow. It went on and on and on. There are hundreds of caves in these hills, and down deep they are all connected. There's even a way under your wall, Gordon's way. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Gendel did not die. He cut his way free, through the crows and led his people back north when the wolves howling at their hills. Only Gendel did not know the caves as Gorn had, and took our own turn. She swept the torch back and forth so the shadows jumped and moved. Deeper he went, and deeper, and when he tried to turn back, the ways they seemed familiar ended in stone rather than sky. Soon his torches began to fail, one by one, till finally there were not but dark. Gendel's folk were never seen again, but on a still night you can hear the children's children's children sobbing under their hills, still looking for the way up. The caves were timeless, vast, silent. They were home to more than three scorned living singers and the bones of thousands dead, and extended far below the hollow hill. Men should not go wandering in this place, leave one of them. The river you hear is swift and black and flows down and down to a sunless sea. 
and there are passages that go even deeper, bottomless pits and sudden shafts, forgotten ways that lead to the very center of the earth. Even my people have not explored them all, and we have lived here for a thousand thousand of your man years. There is some sort of power down there. Bran felt uncomfortable by the well, Alisan didn't like the vibe of the place, and I'm guessing a big reason would have been Silverwing. And everyone just feels off there. From what I understand, at least for quite some time, the wall did not have as many castles. And if Nightford is the oldest, I imagine that for years the only way of passing was through the Black Gate. And for years only the Black Brothers could pass. With the seaside passages at the two ends being the only two other ways. So most likely the Nightford does have the biggest, and from what we see, the deepest opening to whatever exists underground. The thing that is sure is that underneath there is a sunless sea that could easily provide the water they would need for a construction like the wall. The weirwoods also look like they take power from whatever water source is there underneath. They themselves don't look like the power source. They seem like they are a way of connecting with the source. The strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees. These quotes hint that the deeper the root, the more powerful the tree, meaning they are closer to their power source. But even without these quotes, it makes sense for the power that the trees used to come from underneath since the roots perform the majority of the vital functions of a tree and they absorb, store and transport all the essentials. Plus, the root system anchors the above-the-ground part of the tree. The deeper and wider the root system, the more stable and powerful the tree is. The weirwoods are a different take on the Tree of Life war tree archetype, and they are heavily inspired by Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil was watered by three holy wells that were located at its roots. In the poetic Edda, Urdarbrunr is described as being located beneath Yggdrasil that is covered with white mud. The three nords come from the well, set down laws they chose lives for the sons of men and the fates of men. In the Brose Edda, we learn that this very holy well is located beneath the third root of Yggdrasil, and that every day the gods hold court at the well. Like in the Poetic Edda, the well is associated with the Norns, the maidens who shape the lives of men. It states that the Norns take water from the well and mud that lies around it and put it over the Yggdrasil so that its branches do not decay or rot. The water is described as so holy that anything that enters the well will become as white as the membrane called the skin that lies round the inside of the eggshell. The second well is Hvergelmir. In the Poetic Edda, this is the spring whence all the waters rise. The Prose Edda repeats this information and adds that the spring is one of the three major springs at the primary roots of Yggdrasil, and that within the spring is a vast amount of serpents and the dragon Nithagr. One of the rivers that derives from the spring is the river Gjöl, one of the rivers of the underworld whence much wisdom is held to derive. The third well is the well of Mimir. This well is also located beneath one of the three roots of the tree, the roots that passes into the Jotunheimer, where the primordial plain of Ginungagap once existed. Ginungagap, or sometimes referred as the Yawning Void, is the primordial magical void in Norse mythology. The Yawning Void, which faced towards the northern quarters, became filled with heaviness and masses of ice and rime, and from within drizzling rain and gusts, but the southern part of the Yawning Void was lightened by those sparks and glowing masses which flew out of Muspelheim. In the Veluspa, a supernaturally long-lived Velva, who was raised by Jotnar, tells the story of how Odin and his two brothers created the world from Ginungagap. Scandinavian cartographers from the early 15th century attempted to localize or identify it as a real geographic location from which the creation myth derived, and in the 17th century, the name Ginungagap has been used to refer to a narrow body of water. Since George Martin is a big fan of comics, and the whole subterranean concept is taken from the Fantastic Four, I want to add that Ginungagap is featured 
in the Marvel Universe as a void that existed before the formation of the world. It's the place where the entities such as the Elder Gods, Frost Giants, Fire Demons and Nyx were from. Pro Seda relates that the water of the Well of Mimir contains much wisdom and that Odin sacrificed one of his eyes to the well in exchange for a drink. In some iterations, the Well of Mimir is associated with the Gjallarhorn as well, using Gjallarhorn Heimdall drinks from the well and asses himself wise. Gjallarhorn will herald the beginning of Ragnarok and its sound will be heard in all corners of the world. I have talked before about Mimir's Brunner and the idea of blindness in exchange of knowledge is something that we see in A Song of Ice and Fire a lot. Arya became blind, but at the same time she started the skin change while awake and not just in Nymeria. Bloodraven has a root in the place his eye once was, and when people go to all these underground maces, they go crazy from the stuff they see. Thus they need to go in their blindfolded or at least not look. Boas, also called the Blind God, is a deity that was once worshipped in the Valyrian Freehold. His followers settled at the main Isle of Lorath. Their priests wear eyeless hoods because they believe that only in darkness their third eye will open, allowing them to see the higher truths of creation that lay concealed behind the illusions of the material world. The whole idea of the underground rivers, close to the roots of the weirwoods that Leaf is talking about, which empty into a sandless bottomless sea, where the very center of the earth is, aligns with the Norse cosmology. And considering the quotes from Brynden about the strongest trees being the ones where the roots reach the deepest, and how uncomfortable the bottomless places in Bloodraven's cave and in the Nightford as well make people, I think that this sunless sea is connected to the power source, the core of magic in Planetos. Additionally, we see a parallel with the horn that will herald the beginning of the apocalypse, making the similarities quite apparent. The horn's name in our story suggests that they used it in winter, and there is no better way to herald the arrival of winter than raising a huge wall that protects the realms of men from the others and that also can be brought down when it is once again safe. Because realistically, I don't believe that the wall was supposed to stay up forever. The wildlings really do not like the wall, and not just because it confines them, they believe that the magic woven into the wall isn't safe, that it's built of blood, and considering how of people feel in certain places like the Nightford, and how Mel says the power at the wall is even stronger than that of fucking Asai, I would say they are not wrong. <laughs> The wall is blocking every magical connection. John couldn't feel ghost when they were on opposite sides of the wall. The others and the whites cannot pass, but neither can dragons. About dragons, the only thing we know they really do not enjoy is cold and ice. Vermax became ill-tempered when in proximity to snow, ice and cold. We know from Septon Barth that when Arya Targaryen was lowered into the tub of ice, slimy and speakable things making horrible sounds emerged from under her skin one as long as his arm, but the creatures of heat and fire died from the cold of the ice and of course Silverwing wouldn't pass the wall. Alisan noted that the dragon does not like this wall and would hiss and snap at every chilly gust of wind coming down from the wall. Alisan attempted on three occasions to fly Silverwing north beyond the wall, but the dragon refused and veered south every time, something that really troubled Alisan considering the dragon had never refused her commands previously. So I would say that considering the reaction of the dragons and the fact that the wall is made of ice, ice magic is involved. I know. I know, revolutionary idea. The idea that the long night and the conflict between the others and the humans ended with a pact is one that has circulated the fandom for years. And I think that this is the case as well. The others are not an enemy you can beat. Even symbolically, the others represent something that humans cannot beat. Death. Death and moving of seasons are things that humans cannot beat, they just have to make peace with. 
death is inevitable, death is necessary, like winter is. All men must die, Jon Snow, but first we live. Daenerys in a storm of swords dreamed about the others before the siege of Astapor. That night she dreamed that she was Rhaegar, riding to the Trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armored all in ice. But she bathed them in dragon fire and they melted away like dew and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. This instance, at first glance, looked like a battle. But I personally think it means just the end of the conflict, the end of winter, the return of springs, when the rivers flow again and the ice and snow are melting. This scene is symbolic for many reasons. It represents Danny's battles, as well as her role in ending the Long Night, her connection to her brother Rhaegar, and how unlike him she won. But most importantly, the place where this scene takes place, the Trident, the place where the God's Eye is located, the place where a magical pact we know for a fact has already occurred. A magical pact between humans and magical folk, where they split the land, with the singers keeping the forest and the humans the open lands. We even have a pact between House Stark and House Targaryen, the primary magical houses of the series, that represents ice and fire. And if we apply George Martin's explanation about what fire and ice symbolize in the series Life and Death, named literally the Pact of Ice and Fire, there was never a war between the two, and even if a conflict arises, there is no way there would be a winner. And let's not forget that the series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. A song is music, and music needs harmony. Yes, it can exist without it, but harmony adds depth, emotion, and richness. It's the salt of the music. If indeed something like that happened, meaning a pact, then many things in the story kinda make sense. First of all, the existence of the wall in the first place is reminiscent of the splitting of the lands. Above the wall we have the lands of always winter, and under it the realms of men. The main issue with the wall for the wildlings is the fact that they split the lands, and people couldn't move freely wherever they wanted. The free folk believed that the gods made the earth for all men to share, and when the kings came with their crowns and their steel swords, they stole it by clave, it was all theirs and theirs alone. If after the pact the people south of the wall had to follow the social hierarchy and customs already established, then obviously there would be people who wouldn't want that. Add the fact that many of the free folk we have seen are way more cautious with magic and maybe were not cool with the pact in the first place. I know humans, I have met humans, I had a boyfriend who was a human before, and I can guarantee that humans would never agree with each other 100%. Some people surely said, no, I don't vibe with this pact. Ygritte said that the wall is made of blood, and when John asked Dalla, why didn't you use the horn if you had it, she answered that the faster road isn't always the safest, and that magic is not a game. People over the wall might be more open to some kinds of magic, but are also way more wary of it. Secondly, it explains why the wall is made of ice. If both parties took part in the construction of the wall, it makes sense for both parties to contribute to the magic involved. The wall stops the others and the whites, but it stops wargs, skin changers, and dragons as well. And making this wall salty also makes it a tangible representation of the pact itself, of the agreement, like with the guest right. And the guest right is as holy as a heart tree. Involving salt in the wall solidifies this agreement, that holy oath. Plus, we have some jokes here and there that could be foreshadowing and not just jokes. I do not know how you observe guest right on your mountain, sir. In the north we hold it sacred. Wun-Wun is a guest here. Sir Patrick smiled. Tell me, Lord Commander, should the other turn up, do you plan to offer hospitality to them as well? Offering hospitality means offering salt. It means agreement. It means pact. A sacred. Oath. 
the werewolves and the wells also play a huge role. In reality, the trees and the wells do a very similar job. They work as a gateway. They are the links between the underground and the surface. They also transport water from the underground to the surface. And according to the information we get from Leaf and Brynden, they can also transport power. People can get power from them, and we know it to be true. We have seen it. The paste Branade, along with whatever else, had weirwood sap in it and linked him to the trees. People can be tied to these trees that help them gain power, help them fly, and these trees have the roots in this sunless sea. I think that blowing the horn causes the trees and the wells to conduct water from the abyss Leaf was talking about and freeze it into place. After all, a weirwood controls who passes and who doesn't, and this weirwood is inside a well. They are literally the gate, the passageway from one realm to another. Not only everyone's magic is involved if this is the case, but the wall is directly connected to whatever magical core is there underground, and explains why the hell people feel so uncomfortable there, and why the magic is stronger than in a shy. The wall being the result of a pact explains the other's behavior so far. Yes, they have killed some people, and the dead do not stay dead either, but... If they really wanted to attack and kill them and have them in their army, they could have done that already. But they haven't. Even Dormund commented that they didn't directly attack them. For some reason, they do not attack them. At least for the time being. Did they trouble you on your way south? They never came in force, if that's your meaning. They were with us all the same, nimbling at our edges. We lost more outriders than I cared to think about, and it was worth your life to fail behind or wander off. Every nightfall, we ring our camps with fire. They don't like fire mats, and make no mistake. When the snows came, though, snow and sleet and freezing rain, it's bloody hard to find dry wood, or get your kindling lit. And the cold. Some nights our fires just seem to siver up and die. Nights like that, you always find some dead come the morning, lest they find you first. Something more is going on with the others, and if there is a pack still in effect, then it makes sense that they do not kill people and just try to hurt them south. Another race involved in the building of the wall are the giants. We are told that giants help with its building and that blowing the horn would wake giants from the earth. About the latter part, I think it is very much symbolic or it remains as a phrase because the horn wakes something very powerful. It doesn't necessarily mean literal giants. Considering the other story we know is about bringing the wall down, being involved with the construction, though, is something that I could see happening. But again, I doubt that every single giant agreed. Giants in the story are always associated with stone and mazes and underground constructions. The mazes in Lorath and the stone giants in Essos are only some examples. Thus, I can see them helping with the underground, considering that the giants seem to choose to live inside caves, underneath trees and caverns. We know about giants in the caves at the Westerlands, and since their eyesight is so poor but have an extremely good smell, they might have been living in the dark, but unlike the singers who adapted to see in darkened spaces, they adapted to not need their side as much. The reason I don't see all giants being okay with helping is the song Last of the Giants, where we see the lyric, Oh, the small folk have stolen my forest, they've stolen my rivers and hills, and they've built a great wall through my valleys. That being said, some might have helped. The horn the free folk found was from a giant's grave. Even if the horn was not the real one, we still have a connection with a huge horn that could pass as a magical one, the giants and the wall. Additionally, the description we get of some of their dead giants during the Battle of the Wall is very graphic and describes the wall ready to crush them. Three more giants lay outside, half buried beneath stone and slash and hardened pits. He could see where the fire had melted the wall, 
where great steeps of ice had come slowing off in the heat to shatter on the blackened ground. He looked up and where they'd come from. When you stand here, it seems immense, as if it were about to crush you. So maybe the giants did help, but many were killed in the process. Maybe they were giants among the sacrifices for the spells, considering that we know that the wall is made of blood, that blowing magical horns required sacrifices, and the hammer of the waters was so powerful and dark that the children of the forest sacrificed even their kids. Pretty much, this is my idea about the wall. It was the result of a pact, it was raised by the Horn of Winter, and the icy part is salt water from the sandless sea located under the weirwoods that were siphoned using all these bottomless wells and the trees. I imagine the stones at the foundation of the wall are also enchanted to support the wall and to better the protection because, let's not forget, the old gods are the gods of forest, stream, and stone. And we have already seen stony places being protected by sorcery, with Brand's cave and Storm's End being the most eye-catching ones. Whites cannot enter the cave, and Mel said that the Shadow Baby couldn't pass Storm's End's walls. Before the end of this video, which I feel like it's gonna last an eternity and a day at this point, I want to add some more stuff about salt in general. Could salt prevent corpses from rising? Considering the way salt is perceived in real life and in the novels, I wouldn't find it weird if Salt can stop the dead from coming back. They came upon the first corpse a mile from a crossroads. He swung beneath the limb of a dead tree whose blackened trunk still bore the scars of the lightning that had killed it. The carrion crows had been at work on his face and wolves had feasted on his lower legs, where they dangled near the ground. Only bones and rags remained below his knees, along with one well-chewed shoe, half covered by mud and mold. What does he have in his mouth? asked Podrick. Brienne had to steal herself to look. His face was grey and green and ghastly, his mouth open and distended. Someone had shoved a jagged white rock between his teeth. A rock or... Salt, said Serton Maribald. Fifty yards further on, they spied the second body. In this scene, Brienne comes upon the corpses of the men responsible for the atrocities at the town of Saltpans. The men were killed by the Brotherhood Without Banners, which is now led by Lady Stoneheart. I put this forth mostly as a speculation that if Salt has some sort of power, like obsidian and other natural materials possesses in the story, this scene paints a very interesting image. The outlaws, previously under the command of Lord Beric Dondarion, an Azor high figure, and now followers of a resurrected Catelyn who brings death throughout the Riverlands, hanged people, putting an end to them for good, and left a piece of rock salt in their mouths. As I said, this is mostly a speculation, I mean, all the theory is a theory, obviously, might as well be as far off as it gets, but for this one I do not have that much supporting text, apart from what people believe about salt and this very interesting graph scene. I'm gonna end the episode here, because it's already way too long. I hope you had fun and enjoyed this video. Write whatever theory and idea you have down below and don't forget to like and subscribe. This is obviously the last video for 2023, this was the first year of this channel and I want to thank you all very very much for watching the videos and for your support in general. I wish all of you people a bomb New Year's Eve and whatever you wish for 2024 to come true. Happy early New Year and see you in the next upload. Bye!